Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get on with the interview with Dirk, I should let you know about my latest book. It's called The Windsor Method, subtitled The Principles of Solo Training. And, well, I'll read you the formal blurb, which begins... The secret behind all great artists is how they practice. The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, is the self-help book for people who want to add years to their life and life to their years. In this refreshingly straightforward and gentle guide, best-selling author and world-renowned historical swordsmanship instructor Dr. Guy Windsor lays out the fundamental principles behind personal development and excellence in any field. How? by establishing a solid foundation and a step-by-step approach to mechanics and training. This is the Windsor Method. Use it to guide your practice and elevate your skills. Now, obviously, I think it's quite a good book, but what do other people have to say about it? Well, Dr. Andrew Somio, who is an MD, and he's the head coach of Seattle Escrima. He's a master instructor in Latosa Escrima, Lonin Longsword League senior instructor and competition coach. And I should also say he's a friend of mine. Well, I sent it to him and my friends are honest with me and this is what he says. It's a pleasure and a privilege to review Guy Windsor's work on solo practice. Working from vast personal experience, understanding of multiple traditions centuries old and modern understanding of education, learning and motivation, he has produced an extremely useful and approachable book on sustainable, healthy practice and its underpinnings. Starting from first principles, Guy takes you through the prerequisites for developing a practice, provides specifics to implement, then addresses barriers, all in a tone which invites and encourages. I wholeheartedly recommend this work to practitioners of any level. And if that doesn't make me blush, I don't know what would. So, the book is coming out on August the 5th, 2021, on all the usual retailers in paperback, hardback, large print editions and the rest. But it is currently available right now as an ebook only at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. So you can skip along and get yourself an ebook there if you wish. Now, without further ado, on with the show. I'm here today with Dirk Hagedorn, who is something of a legend in our community. He is a translator and author of very many books. If I stack them up, they'd be taller than me. Uh, He's translated and produced um, scholarly editions of Gladiatoria and Lucretia's Messerfencing Treatise and Peter von Danzig's manuscript, etc., etc., etc. The list is long, and we will go into many of them in the interview. He is also, I think this is actually his real claim to fame, he was the layout designer for the German edition of My Dagger Book. Of course, that's that's the book he's going to be remembered for. Yes, not all that scholarly stuff. (laughs) So... Without further ado, Dirk, welcome to the show. Sword guy, I'm happy to be here tonight. (laughs) So, just to orient everybody, whereabouts in the world are you? Well, in Hamburg, which is in northern Germany, for those who do not know and have no clue where this beautiful city actually is. So, northern Germany, okay. Exactly. Uh, Which probably suggests why you're so well known for your work on German manuscripts. 
being German would help. Yeah, sadly, there is no manuscript from Hamburg uh, we know of so far. But yes, since I am from Germany and speak German quite fluently, that helps, of course, a lot to understand the German manuscripts. Absolutely. Okay. So how did you get into historical martial arts? What was, how did that start off? Well, um, I, was a, I was a young boy one day. It's hard to believe, but I actually was. I, I think I was seven years or so when I fell in love with knights and everything related to knights and swords. That was mostly due to, well, due to the TV. Uh, yeah, and with my parents, I sat there time and again, and we watched Ivanhoe and the Knights of the Round Table and Prince Valiant. And so Fantastic. I, ended, I ended up, well, having a, a, a wooden sword and climbing on the, on, the little wood, uh, on the little hill where they built a, a, a swimming pool across the street. And so I went there with my friends and we, had, we did some ludicrous stuff with wooden swords. But, well, that, that was when, the, the, well, when it all began. And so I kept nagging my, my parents that I please did something with swords, which was then completely impossible because, well, that was the 1970s. And, well, there was no such right. thing as going somewhere and, and, and get swords, plastic swords. That was it. And so I, I started, actually, <clears throat> to, to, to build my first own cardboard armor and oh. so at the age of nine i had completed my first cardboard armor that was uh, a silly thing because um i it was bought uh, built out of cardboard and but i decided that something metalish should be inserted and so I, I I combined the joints with little wires, so they okay. it was the metal part, but they cut the armor always in pieces. <laughs> it was it was absolutely silly, but it was my my first armor, and um, I, there's still one photograph of that armor, and uh, I, I cherish that photograph very much. Well, if you send me a copy, I will put it in the show notes. I, I take note because I'm known <laughs> to forget such things. Well, let's see whether I can dig that up somewhere from my wards. No, but then, um, okay. well, I, I started actually, well, sports fencing because that was the closest thing. So I, I, I changed my mind from, well, night was impossible. So how about becoming a musketeer instead? And so I went to, to the sports club where they actually had a brilliant instructor who um, who was I think he was on the Olympic team in saber fencing and so I started wow. saber fencing which I enjoyed very much at the time and um, well I, I I still owe him a lot because well the first day I went there he, he said when he was a little boy and he started fencing um, his fencing instructor well kept them doing footwork over and over and over again and only after months of footwork they were allowed to hold a blade and so he said he was so annoyed by that uh, that he decided if he were ever to have well pupils they were allowed a blade in the very first second and so i became <laughs> in that very first second when i hold my first saber and well, yeah it started, it started from there from the well I don't, I don't know i was 10 or 11 years old so yeah, every fencing instructor I've ever had over, should we say, the age of 50 has gone on about how when they were a lad or when they were a girl, they 
they weren't allowed to actually hold a sword in the first class. It was like months of footwork and then yeah. like yeah. lessons with the coach only. And, you know, they've been training for a year before they ever cross plays with another student. And, you know, I'm not sure that is the only way to do it. I certainly put swords in my students' hands on their first day because yeah. that's what so, they came so I. I, I, I took that as the kind of inspiration. And I liked it and I can imagine everybody else likes it because why are going people to a sword fighting class because they want to hold a sword and most people never had. Right, exactly. So you you did a bunch of sport fencing, and then how did you actually get into the historical martial arts? Well, that was well, that was kind of a journey because well, I I stuck to sports fencing for three years, had a three years break, did three years again, had a three years break, and then I met um, then I met another inspiring person, Tim Gerresheim, who became my my fencing master, and he he was. Um, also into stage combat and so I, I took a turn in stage combat because um, there are a number of, um, of schools for actors in Hamburg and not every school is able to, to provide their own fencing master and so he just would, with some kind of basin uh, where all those, um, those aspiring actors came to in order to, to learn stage combat and I stuck with him for five years or four I don't know and he constantly referred to, well, to, to, to old fight books. And in his fencing hall, he had uh, reproductions of, I don't know, Agrippa and Albrecht Dürer. And he always referred to Albrecht Dürer's fight book, which was, which was uh, an, an eye-opener for me because, well, I, 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 I am an illustrator by trade. So that is what I have actually learned. And so um, in, in, when, I, when I studied illustration, exactly, so the art of drawing, um, one of my large and biggest and grandest heroes was Albrecht Dürer. And his, his way of cross-hatching taught me actually how to cross-hatch. And I learned so much from him. And so when I learned from my old fencing master that Albrecht Dürer actually had created a fight book, that was a very nice connection. Yeah, that's lightning, that is. Yeah, and, and so, uh, well, but that was, well, that was four years or so, and that was still in the 1990s, before, before, the, before the internet, actually. And uh, so, actually, that, that was, well, laying the foundation, so to speak. And a couple of years later, I think it was in 2003, I only learned that there was a group in, in Hamburg we were meeting constantly or regularly in the in the in the Stadtpark in the city park, and um, they were doing some kind of sword play. I was told, and I thought, no, that is ridiculous. Nobody in their right mind would hold a sword and bash each other with a sword with an actual steel sword. But alas, uh, it was not a lie. And so one day I I, I went there, and uh, that was quite intriguing because it was. That was Hammerborg, and it was the club I'm still instructor of. Mm -hmm. So obviously I stuck. But back then, in 90, no, 2003, I was kind of a, well, well, as if I had stepped out of a time machine, but in a, in a different direction, because, well, they were at the time still very much into reenactment of the Viking Age. And so I had ordered half a year earlier, uh, my first real steel suit of armor. So 30 years 
earlier, I created my first cardboard armor. And finally, when I was able to afford a steel armor, I ordered that. And only then I learned that there was a sword fighting group in Hamburg. And so when I went there, there were, were those Vikings from the year, say, 1000. And there I was claiming to have ordered a Gothic suit of armor from around the year 1500. So there was a time gap between us. And that was just a little bit hard, hard to fill. Wow. So, so you started training with Hammerborg um, and doing a bit of the Viking stuff and then your suit of armor arrives. Did, not, did it actually armor, fit? Right? Did it fit? Huh? Did it fit? Did what your do you armor mean, no, fit? Yes, of course, did because it was, it was bespoke. So it was, I, I, went, I went to my armorers for several fittings and saw... Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've had trouble with armor being made and you know I, my first suit of armor fit so badly that I ended up selling it to the um, Helsinki National or well, the National Opera House in Helsinki so they can use it okay. on stage because it was completely useless for any kind of actual combat no I still have it here you can't see it but it is I, if I touch my left if I stretch out my left arm I can mm -hmm. touch it and it is right here and I still wear it and it is still good it is not well, really as, as one middle-aged man to another, the fact that you can still fit into armor that was made for you 17 years ago is quite impressive. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I still haven't grown entirely in my suit of armor, so there is <laughs> so still some kind of corona belliness, which I can afford <laughs> to finally fit into it. No, but that, it, as I said earlier, it is a, a good and a very nice armor, but it is not perfect. And that it is still too large for me is one of those issues I have with it because it, it, it fits, yes, but it doesn't fit perfectly. And so, yeah, but nevertheless, it is in my study here and I enjoy it each and every single day. Absolutely. Uh, so what are your main research interests? Well, you, we, we touched that earlier. Of course, um, being from Germany, uh, sticking my nose in the German sources uh, was quite, well, um, well, it, it was a natural thing to do. Um, um, well, I, I learned about these sources well soon enough because, well, um, in, in the year of 2003, when I started sword fighting, although a bit Viking-related, of course, the sources were there and the internet was there and one was constantly scanning the internet in, in order to, to find something. And there was actually, there was something to find, but on the other hand, there was quite little to find comparing to today with uh, online sources that have manuscripts in abundance, even from the libraries themselves, Back then, that was quite, there were, I don't know, there was the Arma website, particularly the Polish one was quite intriguing because they had transcriptions of the Peter von Danzig fight book. And here and there, there were some other, some other transcriptions. And of course, I, I stuck to the German sources because I was able to read it. Right. Which is, which is okay, which is, which is good. I, I can, but... Well, I, I don't know. You 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 are not German, so you possibly are your your understanding of early New High German could be limited. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But well, I can I can tell you the reason I do Italian martial arts primarily is because I can read Italian, and 
I've also done work on English language treatises and French language treatises, and that is basically it. I mean, I could have maybe gotten some way through the Spanish, but Spanish ones tend to be very, very dense and language heavy. So they're quite hard to work with because my academic Spanish isn't nearly that good. But yeah, I mean, the reason I don't teach German martial arts is simply because I don't read German. And learning German is it's going to take me too long. And there's too many people like you out there who keep taking these books and making them readable in English. So, so there's no pressure for me to actually learn the language. No, and luckily there are enough um, our, uh, other other languages available, as you say, Italian. Yeah, but um, even if you are a modern German, it may be a treat to understand early New High German because, sure. well, there are there are many false friends, and actually you need to be aware of them in order to, well, uh, in order to bring them back to life. Because, well, reading, of course, is one thing, but if you want to to interpret or reproduce or recreate what is written in the book you need to understand what is written there and so there are many 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 shifts in well what the what a, what a specific term actually meant then and what it means today the most well i, I think one of the most famous sentences is in the zornhau which is well most people of your listeners will probably know what a Zornhau is. It is, well, sure. a cat from above. And uh, so in, in, in the original old German, it says, der Zornhau ist nichts weiter als ein schlichter Paurenschlag. So schlicht is the essential word here, which can be translated into modern English. Well, it is a, a bad peasant's joke because it says schlecht, schlicht. And um, in modern German, Schlecht means bad, but back then it meant, meant simple. And ah. so, so w when you say today it is a bad peasant stroke, yes, okay, you can say that. But what it originally meant is it was a simple peasant stroke, so everybody could do it. Right. And so it is not it is not a particularly intriguing or a technique that requires a lot of finesse. It is simple. And so there are many more right. of these words. And um, so, so you need actually, well, actually, you need a dictionary. Yeah, and the same is true with Italian. Like, for example, at one point, Fiore says to put your left <laughs> foot forward. And the phrase he uses is il pie stanco, which means in modern Italian, your tired foot. Hmm. So, you know, which, <clears throat> which leg is tireder? Put that one in front. No, no, no yeah. it's your left foot. I remember I, I, for for one of my you, you mentioned a few for one of my books I can't remember which one I, I needed to translate a passage from Fiore and I put it into not Google Translate but but an online in, um, translating tool and in fact there was the tired foot and of course the context made it clear what was meant so yeah, yeah. I, I didn't print the tired foot <laughs> <laughs> no it, but it it is a bit. Well, uh, I was a bit flabbergasted and couldn't really actually, well, context means a lot in these instances. But, well, actually, I have, I don't know, three or four early new high German, modern German dictionaries, and I use them frequently. And occasionally there are obscure passages that frequently need to be checked and rechecked time and again. Yeah, and, and there are always words that are going to catch you out because the meaning has changed. And sometimes... Like 
if it's a, a casual phrase, it, it doesn't really make it into the dictionaries even because they're like expressions which have just lost. To there are, yeah, there are two interesting things because there are there is one dictionary that has a lot of fencing phrases in it. Oh, cool. And all these are um, taken from Martin Wierschin's glossary from 1965. Right. So Martin Wierschin made... Made up is a bit derogative. No, he, he was a clever man. And so a lot of his glossary still is valid, but he wasn't a practitioner. But still in the dictionary, everything taken out of the, or, or which, is, uh, which, which corresponds to fencing terminology is taken from Martin Wierschin. And every error Wierschin made is in the dictionary. And so that, those errors travel. And so he was the authority to feed the dictionary. But we right. know better, so don't trust the dictionary. And on the other hand, the other hand, the sources, particularly the latest sources from the well, 16th century, deteriorate a lot. So what was understandable in the 15th century made complete gibberish in the 16th. Yeah, we are, we see that in every language. I think um, I'm currently having. You know, George Silver is probably the most famous English language treatise, and he wrote his Paradoxes of Defense in 1599. And I'm right now having it um, recorded as an audiobook with two actors, yeah. one who is um, you know, a classical actor who's doing it in like, modern pronunciation. Okay. And um, I've got a chap called Ben Crystal, who is very well known in the original pronunciation Shakespeare world. And his dad is actually a linguist who has done probably the definitive work on how English was pronounced back then. And listening to Ben read George Silver in the original pronunciation, all sorts of things just come clear, right? It was perfectly intelligible before. It's not difficult English, yeah. really. But the way it is pronounced, the way it, the rhythms of it and everything, it just, I don't know, it gives it a kind of depth and color that it just didn't have before. Intriguing, yeah, because I try to read Silver, and actually, for me as a non-native speaker, it is really, really hard because I have to sure. I have to read each and every single word aloud in order to 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 tell what actually was written there because it deviates very much from modern orthography. Right, yeah, and but that's actually how the original pronunciation thing works because the spelling was non-standard, so they would spell it the way they said it. And so you get all these clues. Yeah, you get all these clues for how it would have been said. And, you know, in, in many ways, it's a good, it's a good thing because that gives us a kind of window onto how the language used to be spoken. Yeah, and but then it's there a are real rules. pain. Yeah. And then there are rules how to speak the written word. And you need to know that. Because in English, you, yeah. No, in, in German, too. In German, because, too. Okay. Because, uh, for instance, um, there is, well, the... The two letters ST, for instance, followed mm -hmm. by, let's say, Stück, is, yeah. is written ST, U umlaut, CK, Stück. So mm -hmm. it is a sh, yeah. um, a, a sh sound in the beginning, but there is no CH or something written that would indicate the sh uh, sound. So you need to know that. And so when you, when, you, when you apply that same rule to every uh, connection between the two consonants, the first one being an S, whichever follows it, it has to be pronounced as sh. Today, it's only with ST and SP. But back then, 
it was with every consonant. Oh wow! Okay. And so, so um, if a if a, a if a treatise says "svert," it isn't supposed to be pronounced "svert," but "svert" instead. And uh, so the writing is different from today, but it was pronounced the same way as today. And you need to know that. Okay. And that gives a much clearer understanding to the sometimes strange, strange phrasing of words or a strange orthography, because it isn't that strange after all if you know the rules. Okay. Now, I've, I've been thinking about asking you some specific questions about translating German manuscript sources and how you approach that. But it does sound to me like you need to write the book on the subject. Not a book, the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, Guy, I, I'm writing a lot of the books. Um, <laughs> so actually, I, 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 I constantly lose track what book I'm actually writing. And so last, last summer, I was actually writing seven books simultaneously. And so it's getting really, really, really out of hand. And uh, at least two or three of them were the books. <laughs> another one of the book issue. So, um, yes, one day. But I think there are, I don't know, at least five books that need to come before it. But then again, then again, why me? No, I, I don't think so. Because there are people who, who deal professionally with language and do that much cleverly than I could ever do that because I need to, I need to stick my nose in, in things. And I, I, well, I didn't study that stuff. And so people know that and they have inhaled every inch of that. And so I just dabble on the surface and I know stuff, but I don't go into these depths. So with, with what I'm doing, actually, with these fight books anyway, is going to great depths and, 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 and gathering knowledge. And, and time and again, I realize that I know next to nothing, which is so, well, it's not frustrating. It is, well, it is a bit of a humbling experience because, well, I, 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 I think I can claim that I know a lot about the German sources. But then time and again, I need to, to check my notes, and, and, and I'm surprised how little I know. And um, so there is a whole world of new knowledge to be gathered. And these five books that I have on my slate, they need to come first in any place. Okay, so what are those five books? Well, one you know of. Yeah, yeah, one I know of, but the, the listeners don't. Yes, Dirk and I are writing a book together. I actually have a mock-up of the cover um, on the wall behind me. It's called Lemon and Vinegar. That's the working title. And it is uh, a comparison of Fiore's longsword, of Fiore's martial arts and the contemporary German martial arts of the time. And yes, it is, it is coming very, very slowly because it's very, very hard. It's not exactly that hard. It is just my time frame that doesn't allow it. But I oh, think, and mine. <laughs> okay, but I think well, I think we can start in 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 summer or or autumn to actually really go dig deep into it into details because before that, I I need to to finish two books actually. Um, actually, currently I'm I'm working on my books number. I just looked it up. My books number twelve. And 14. Okay. Which so one's 13? Yeah, that, it, it doesn't have to do anything with superstition, but um, books 
12 and 14 are, um, well, uh, it is, well, I don't know if it's a secret. When is this series going to get broadcast? When do you put it uh, off? This one um, is about eight weeks from now. Okay, okay, cool. Possibly I'll be ready with that. So in order I can, can give in a little secret, which today is a secret, but in eight weeks it may no longer be. So, okay. Um, the, I, I spoke earlier of my great hero. My yes, hero, Dürer. Yes. And of course, people know Dürer has produced the fight book, or at least he and or his workshop were part of that huge fight book. And there was an edition published in 1907 and 1910 by Friedrich Dörnhofer, and he published the images. And there are, yeah. I think, 120 images, and they were reproduced in state-of-the-art color type images. There is no uh, a printing time that is no longer in use today, and it produces magnificent quality, but only in black and white. Um, color is mediocre. But what Donhofer didn't publish was the second part. And the second part is text only. No oh, my God. Yes. The, yes it is massive. It is a massive volume. And it contains everything, including the kitchen sink. Wow. And, you know, it has... It has an abridged version of Lechwichner's Messer Fencing. It has armored combat. It has mounted combat. It has even more um, armored combat. It has dagger. It has more dagger. And um, uh, some of these sources, uh, well, when, when I started to work with, on that book, six years ago, on the invitation of Daniel Jacquet, there were uh, one or two uh, one or two passages or sections that were completely unique. Meanwhile, we figured out or found out that there, because, well, we didn't actually discover a lost manuscript, but a manuscript that up to now was completely unknown to to the fencing um, community. And okay. so, this part, this section about dagger fencing can be found in another manuscript, which, um, well, which, which I just, well, as I said, I can't claim to have discovered it because it was commented on in a footnote, a footnote in, in a book about uh, the life and the correspondence of Albrecht Dürer. And the book was out, I think, in 1969. So it, it, it is out there for quite a while, but nobody in the fencing community has ever paid attention to that particular footnote. And his friend, Vera's <laughs> hey, friend. Let, sorry, let, let me just, okay. Okay. This, this gives you a perfect window into Dirk's head. He is astonished that the fencing community has not paid attention to a footnote in a book published in 1969. That just does not compute. How could we have missed it? It's right there in the text. <laughs> yeah, it is. For, for everybody can read it. That's right. So why, why don't people do that? Because I don't know. I, I have no clue. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that the other half of Dura's treatise even existed. I always thought it was just the pictures. That's all I've ever seen. So I am yeah, exactly. So you're, you're producing a proper edition of the Dura source with the pictures yes. and the text. This is going to be a cool book because it contains each and every single image, 120, I think, that are. 
And I, I, I have to thank Daniel Jacquet for bringing me on board in the first place because he asked me in, in 2015 to, to, to give him a little assistance with the transcription. And so I, well, uh, that, that, another deviation later on that. So I, I got access to the manuscript, which was, well, it was a secret, so to speak. Nobody knew of it. There was a little allusion to, to the text in Don Hoffer's text, Don Hoffer's text, but it didn't print it. So there was a little murmur about it, a little mentioning here and there, but nobody has ever seen it. And so I got this top secret file and had the ability to, 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 to actually transcribe it. And then things got messy and were delayed time and again. And finally, half a year ago, things were, well, turned out to, well, Despite all this corona madness, that was the best thing that happened to me last year, that I finally was granted access to the files and that the book had to be produced. Oh, wow. So where are the files? Well, they are in, in the Albertina, which is a graphical arts museum in Vienna. Dürer is a project, well, closest to my heart than I could even express because, well, he's my hero and I've known about Dura's fight book for, I don't know, well, as I said, my, my, my fencing master taught me about it, I don't know, decades ago. And now it's finally coming out with full color images, full reproduction of all the images, including the text only pages and a full transcription, a full translation. And as I said, these are books number 12 and 14 I'm working on, because the, uh, the, the strange thing is um, I, I have a couple of publishers meanwhile. And so my British publisher in London was the one who proposed the project. And wow. so I, I'm very grateful for Daniel, Daniel Jacquet, who, who brought me on board in the first place in, in 2015. I think I mentioned it earlier, but possibly it was lost in one of those outtakes and um so 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 he um brought me on board and uh, michael from uh, from from greenhill books uh, suggested to actually publish Dürer, and he licensed it to my german publisher but my okay. german publisher is quicker than my original british publisher so um my, uh, my, my book being published in Britain will be published as the original version after the German licensed edition will be out. And so meanwhile, my other book about Jörg Wilhelm will be published in between. Okay. And that is book 13. Coming up. <laughs> and so book 13 is actually, I think book 13 is, uh, is worth to elaborate a bit on also because that is the second of my Corona books, but, um, okay, no, okay, actually it is the first of my Corona books, but it comes later than my second Corona book. Oh, it's so confusing. All these books, <laughs> like in, in the, in the old manuscripts, you, 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 you lose track so easily. Now, because, um, I, I need to tell you the story because it was last March, mm -hmm. March, 2020. And, um, I had just, guess what? Finished a book. And so I, I sat there at the breakfast table with my kids and they said, so, okay, kids, daddy has just finished a book. And how about you? Did you finish a book? 
any book. <laughs> now that's parenting, that is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so they said, okay, Daddy, we'll help you with your next book. And they said, yes, Great. I, I, I believe you. I believe you, certainly. And they said, no, 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 really, we'll we do it. We'll do it. And I said, okay, let's see. And so the next book was already scheduled. It was Jörg Wilhelm. And uh, so there was tons of work to do. And so I, I, I thought for a while and imagined what, what could be possibly a decent task for the kids to actually perform. And mm -hmm. so... I, I, I singled out two, two tasks, and my son actually was granted with a duty to, um, to uh, work on the picture concordance, okay. because um, the Jörg Wilhelm book is, um, it is uh, an illustrated, mostly illustrated manuscript, but it contains certain amounts of text too, and it contains... Um, a lot of fighting disciplines. It has unarmored uh, longsword, it has armored combat, and it has mounted combat, all full in, in, in full splendor, colorful images. Uh, and a lot of text too. 100 and, I don't know, 200 pages of text that goes with the images. And, um, but Jörg Wilhelm is, well, um, it's a source that doesn't stand in a, in a vacuum. So he had predecessors and successors. And all in all, there were 13 manuscripts that were in more or less close relationship to that single manuscript from, um, from Munich. And so I needed to compare each and every single image from the Munich manuscript with the other sources. And so I had a giant table laid out. And so my little son, Henry, sat there with his pencil and putting folio numbers in, in the little boxes I left open in order to say, OK, folio 27 recto in Wilhelm compares to 17 recto in Anton Rast to 28 verso in um, Joachim Meyer and you know what. And so he compared yeah. those 200 images with those other 13, uh, 13 illustrated fight book manuscripts. That is a lot of work. That was a lot of work, yes. That is a stink. I mean, I've done that with Fiore, but that is four manuscripts which are all pretty similar uh, and it, very it easy was, to... It, was, it, 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 it but, took months. My daughter, yeah. my daughter, on the other hand, um, well, I gave her the texts to, transcri to transcribe. From the from the handwriting? Yes. Wow, that's hard. How did yes. you do? Yes. And um, so uh, one needs to know that uh, the, the Gewilheim manuscript is, well, it is from 1522 to 1523, and it is written in the Bastarda uh, of the mm -hmm. time in a very, very fluent handwriting. So it is not particularly accurate, but it is not sloppy either. So it is like a, like a nice, decent, everyday handwriting. Nothing substantial, nothing too fancy, but you need to, well, you, you need to look closely. And so uh, for the first two or three folios, uh, I, I gave her Another transcription I had on my on my um, on my hard drive for comparison, 
which I don't know who who made that in the in the 1990s or early 2000s. I don't remember actually. And it was it was an okay transcription, but it was not flawless. But it was a good starting point to compare her achievement with what somebody else has done. And so after I don't know three or four folios, she didn't need that anymore. And so it took her. I don't know, I think exactly six months in order to complete those 200 pages. And that was a huge asset because for the first yeah. time, I didn't transcribe an entire manuscript, but actually she did it. And meanwhile, I, I could concentrate on masking the images and writing the introduction and doing a little bit of yeah. research about who wow. did what and where was when what and who did what to whom. So so this, is, so this isn't this isn't a vanity parent kid project. Their kids are actually doing real solid work. That's amazing. How old are they? Uh, well, Henry was eleven and Helen was fourteen. Now they are a year older, of course, because it was uh, a year ago. A year ago. That is very young for being able to do that kind of work. And you know what? The best thing is, I, I didn't press them. They pressed themselves. Wow. And so I think I, I thought, well, I, they, they, they really did. Well, of course, it is the proud daddy speaking, but nevertheless, I think they did truly amazing stuff. And so I insisted uh, that both of her names are uh, to be put on the cover. Of course, absolutely. They have to be. Yeah. And yeah. so, so it's, it's really a, a family business. That's fantastic. I'm going to get my daughters to listen to this and see if they go, oh, daddy, it's boring sword stuff. We don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, but, I, I, don't you know. know. I don't know whether it was in one of your um, your podcasts or whether it was some, some random Facebook discussion where, where people talked about their, their daughters or their children in general and whether it is cool what their parents do. Right. And so, so um, I, I don't know, but uh, my, my daughter has, uh, last year, she got her first sword, and a couple of months ago, she got her first fencing mask. And so I do hope wow. she sticks a little longer. And Henry has his sword, too, and his messer, and the, the, whole, um, the whole armory. We, I, meanwhile, we have three armories. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my, my daughters have, since since they were fairly little, they you know when they were like really little, yeah, anything Daddy did was cool, and they wanted to go to the sale and play with swords and play with the other weapons and you know. Um, but since basically since they were old enough to have their own interests, or six, seven, or whatever, they just just not into swords at all. I, somehow it skipped a generation. Yeah, you can't force it because I no, absolutely. I, I, I was I was the Star Wars geek in my in my younger days, and so I I. When I brought the kids to the kindergarten, so I, I always told them bits and pieces of Star Wars, episodes four to six, of course. Mm -hmm. and of course. So it's Real Star Wars, none of that yeah. modern shit. <laughs> yeah, real I, I don't know, it took me one or two years in order to, to, uh, to tell the entire trilogy. And so, of course, they were enthused. And uh, that was the time, I think, when, when Clone Wars uh, was on, on, on TV or somewhere. And so everybody was um, dressing up as clone troopers. And so, but that didn't stick. So, okay, they, they don't despise Star Wars, not at all. And, and we, are, we are watching it on May the 4th. We are watching Star Wars, of course, and of course. Uh, everything. But that was, that was some kind of excitement that, that well, that, didn't it, it did make the jump to the next generation 
Although I tried. And with swords, sure. I didn't try at all. So um, it just came naturally. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's just, just luck. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You can't force it. I, I don't want them to ever look at a sword and see it as a duty. That would be, that would be a terrible thing to do to a kid. Uh, but now, I have a note here before I forget. Um, there has been rumours on Tinternet that Tal Hoffer is a complete fraud who couldn't win a fencing match to save his life. I am referring, of course, to the, uh, the <laughs> note in a manuscript that has recently surfaced suggesting that Mr. Tal Hoffer got whacked on the head and the arm. Would you care to tell us... Tell those who don't know what I'm talking about what we're talking about oh and throw, in, throw in some detail. Go for it, mate. Go for oh, it. Oh, my goodness. Yes, there is a lot of stuff to talk about. Well, okay. <laughs> where, where to start? Well, actually, if I were that famous that somebody cared to write about that I lost in a duel, that I lost in a duel, I'd be truly famous. So yeah. losing in a duel... Well, why not? I lose constantly in bloody duels, but nobody writes about it. So, I don't know. Okay, so um, concerning con context, everybody loses every once in a while. But then again, Talhofer is, of course, one of the household names in, 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 in fencing history. And I think that is due to the fact that Talhofer, well, uh, was known to the masses, well, before... Every other fencing master. So in the 1880s, there were books uh, published um, by, by Gustav Herzl about three of Talhofer's manuscripts. So he was the fencing authority. And suddenly he got whacked in the head and sliced in the hand. How on earth could that happen? And it happened, obviously, sometime in the 15th century. And um, the, the strange thing is, well... I, I said earlier that I didn't discover a manuscript which I discovered. And okay. this, again, is something I didn't discover which I discovered. And okay. so um, people who are a bit versed in the art of German fencing have heard the name Peter von Danzig. Mm -hmm. Peter von Danzig is, well, it is one name of one author in a companion with, I don't know, a dozen or so fencing treatises bound together in a book. There are uh, sources based on Johannes Lichtenauer's teachings on unarmored combat with a sword, with mounted combat, armored combat, wrestling techniques, etc., etc. And um, because one of the authors, the last author, actually has a name, Peter von Danzig. Commonly, it is referred to as Peter von Danzig fight book. It is disputable. There are other names floating around. Some prefer other names, but Peter von Danzig is the household name. So I stick to that too, because it makes communication easier. So, right. And in this book, which I incidentally happen to have here, um, there was... Um, a deleted, a cancelled, a cancelled well, passage. So, what what possibly is important to know? Um, this book is from 1452, and it has been around the internet for I don't know more than 20 years. So, people mm -hmm. transcribed it, 
I transcribed it because I looked at those transcriptions and once I got hold of the actual images, I noticed one or two misreadings, so I created my own translation. And that was, I think, in 2004 or five. And in 2007 or eight, I can't remember exactly, I, I, I published that book with a transcription and a modern German translation. And it has seen three um, print runs so far. Mm -hmm. And um, it is, it is I, I, I'd rather it's say... It's a standard it's, text. It's, it's, it's a standard yeah, text. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's the longsword by Lichtenauer, which you refer to constantly. And I think particularly because it was a cheap book, it cost, I don't know, 26 euros or so, Everybody has it in Germany yep. or Austria or Switzerland in the German-speaking. I've got it. Oh yeah, you're cool. You're cool. <laughs> okay, so everybody, everybody has the red book because it has mm -hmm. a red cover. So, yeah. and um, finally, last year, I, 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 I don't know. I chatted with Christian Tobler, and we, we, we just talked, and we came up with the idea: why not? joined forces because he had a translation done, I don't know, in 2010 in, in an in a, in a anthology in St. George's, George's name, and it was stuck there, and my transcription was there but not available to the English-speaking market, and so we decided to, to well, to, to make a similar edition with the transcription juxtaposed to the translation. Left-hand side, transcription, right-hand side, translation. So Fantastic. for easy reference, in order to, because what I said earlier about schlicht, schlecht, bad, simple. So you, if you are able to understand a bit of the old German, you can instantly refer where the, the translation falls short, because every translation falls short, because there is so much yeah. density in the old texts. Well, we know that, but it is, Easier if you can cross-reference and you have a direct uh, direct comparison of the original and the translation. Okay, so we decided to do that last, I don't know, July, I think. It was July, July, August, name it, anyway. And I rechecked my translation, because uh, my transcription, because no transcription is as good as it can possibly be. There are always things you discovered, and I looked at the old sources, the old image sources, and finally, I remembered there was a deleted, a cancelled passage on folio 19 verso. And so I rechecked that passage. And, well, it's, it's of course, hard, a, a bit uh, hard to, to describe that now verbally. But the manuscript consists of headlines written in red and the text written in black. And um, there were six lines written in red, which were crossed out and scratched out and erased very, very thoroughly. Cross-hatched with black dots on them, so somebody took great pains in order to eradicate these six lines. And so when I looked again after 10 years or so, I suddenly could decipher the last three lines without much trouble. Okay. And there were six lines. And so I, I, I took, again, great pains to, to copy-paste single letters from the other red um, headlines throughout the manuscript and pasted them over 
similar looking letters. And of course, the medieval scribes had a certain variety in how they wrote single letters, but only to a certain extent. So mm -hmm. an N wouldn't look completely different from another N. Slightly different, but not entirely. And so I, I copy-pasted tons and tons of single letters. And um, so I could decipher, after a while, five out of these six lines. And they said, Meister Hansen, den Talhofer, vor meiner Herren Gnaden, Herzog Albrecht zu München in die Hand geschnitten und auf den Kopf geschlagen which translate roughly to Master Hans Talhofer in front of my Lord and the Grace Duke Albrecht in Munich, cut in the hands and hit on the head. So very rough translated because it's quite yeah. letter, uh, word by word. So but the first line really, really, really gave me trouble because there was a word completely illegible except some dots. The meaning or the, the context made it clear that Stuck, peace, Technique was mm -hmm. the, the, the word that needed to be inserted there. And so I copy-pasted the word Stuck from somewhere, and it fit quite decently with all the, the remaining mm -hmm. little, little tiny red remainders of what previously had been letters. And so, mit dem Stuck hat Meister. With this piece, Master mm -hmm, has struck Master Hans Tallow. Who was that? And that was yes. the most difficult word to decipher because it didn't make any sense. So the first letter had an had an um, descender. So it could be only an S, Certain, a long S, or a P, or a Q, or whatever. And another letter certainly was either an L or an H. And so again, I copy-pasted tons and tons of letters and suddenly there appeared a name, which actually is a name, Pertold. And so there was it. Took me, took me quite a while, actually, to, <laughs> to, to do that. I felt like a bit like, I don't know whether that is a thing, but like the three investigators <laughs> who, um, who, who did some kind of uh, strange little tricks in order to uh, clear some crime. But there I had it. I had the text quite decently deciphered, and suddenly it became clear that some ominous Pertold, mm -hmm. whom nobody has ever heard of, has obviously struck Master Hans Talhofer on the head and sliced him in the hand. Okay. And so, the strange uh, thing is, why, A, was it put there in the first place? Mm -hmm. Because it is, well, Peter von Danzig, the, the, the fight book is pretty straightforward. It is, there, there are no anecdotes in there. It is it, it's just technique followed after technique. There is nothing anecdotal in there, nothing whatsoever, except possibly the, the introduction where it says, young knight learn to, to honor women, etc., yeah. etc., which is not anecdotal either. And no. so suddenly we have some kind of biographical notice in there. So was it a scribe copying from, from a template? And there was this a random scrap paper laying there and he said, oh, I need to copy that too. And it was simply an error or not, or it was deliberately, I don't know. See, I think nobody what? knows. And then why was it deleted? Got Master Hans Tollhofer, um, got his hands on the book and said, oh, no, that, I, that doesn't sit well with me. I need to erase that instantly because uh, my, my, my fame would be in, in, in ruins. 
So anyway, it has been cancelled very, very thoroughly, but it has been deciphered, and now it's everybody's guess what actually has happened there in what order. Okay, my first question would be, given the existence of palimpsests, where you have a book written on vellum that you don't particularly like very much, and so, but vellum's expensive, so you scrape all the ink off and you have a new book written on top, right? Very common practice. So we know that you can just scrape the ink off. You do that, you do that on vellum. You don't do that that frequently on paper. Oh, is it on paper? Yes. Ah, fine, okay. That, 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 explains, the, that explains and that. It, and it is in the middle of a page. So, and it says, ah, this okay. piece. so it refers actually to the piece before or the piece after, which is some piece from the Tverhau, which is that horizontal cut where you strike with a, with a short edge to the opponent's head. So it actually refers to a specific technique. And to my knowledge, there is only one other uh, fight book that, that, that refers that somebody has actually performed a technique described on the page uh, to his um, own um, profit, and the other one is Paulus Hector Meyer, who did the same thing in the 1550s, 1560s, when he had the, the, the sketchbook for one of his huge masterpieces done, uh, where he said, with this piece, um, I have struck master Arachni Plattner, which is, I think, right. a piece from the Scheitelhau. But okay. that it is in the text, hmm. in okay. the correct red writing is I, I have really I have a theory okay, I have a theory ahead. I have a theory okay the scribe was a fencing fan okay and he happened to see that bout and he was thrilled to get the job of writing out this particular book because he's a bit he's a you know a sword fan but Talhofer or somebody like Talhofer had been mean to him in the intervening time so he thought he would just throw it because it's in the same hand in the same ink it, it's it's you know it's the same scribe, right? Yes. He he would he, yeah. Talhoff Talhoff had I don't know maybe don't know, run off with his wife or something like that, and so he thought right I'm gonna get that little fucker and just 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 somewhere in the text hoping that no one would notice he just wrote this little story. But yeah, and but, then his yeah. boss and then his boss came along and was like, <laughs> no, you will scrub that out right now. He should have been cleverer than not using red, because yes. red is reserved for headlines, and this yes. is definitely not a headline. But he wanted anyone to see it. <laughs> it is just, it is just, it is just a complete miracle, and it is very, very intriguing. Because who the heck is Master Pantoid? But then again, I may be completely mistaken and read something into the text which actually doesn't stand there. But then again, I, I like to prove me everybody, everybody to prove me wrong. Yeah, but also, it is. It it is could be. You, you can, of course, it is hard to actually tell. And um, best thing, of course, would be go to Rome where the manuscript is kept and have your, your, your X-ray scanner with you yeah. and just X-ray the page. That, that would possibly clarify a lot more than some random dude sitting there night of a uh, night, <laughs> night, <laughs> night again in order to, 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 copy-paste single letters on a cluster <laughs> passage. That is really, really nerdy. I really felt <laughs> but, but, but it's the kind of nerdy we appreciate on this show, sir. So, 
So you're yeah, amongst absolutely. friends. And, and, and you know what? That gave me so much pleasure, actually. It was so, it, it, I, I just couldn't believe my eyes when, when I saw that. And so I, it just was a bit hesitant, hesitant actually, to, to I, I couldn't really believe, okay, Master Pertoid, yes, okay, possibly. And I gave that Christian, of course, to, mm. to, to check and recheck. And so he can come up with a more reasonable reading. And so just we, we put it in the book. And now it is in the book for everybody to see. And if it is utter nonsense, what I have inside, I assume no. But uh, the strangest thing is, um, of course, I, I thought, okay, that is, that is a cool discovery. And I think I never, ever can expect to make such a bizarre uh, discovery again. Um, but, but the internet, my personal bubble, was going wild for uh, one, one and a half days. <laughs> it's fantastic. That was okay. really, really intriguing. Yeah, and, and the sort of detail that you only get when you look at the books over and over and when you're willing to spend the time unpicking the difficulties. And, and that is particularly because you asked earlier, what... what what actually keeps me looking in those sources and what is my main purpose or my main research interest. I actually, after an hour, I didn't really properly answer that question so far, but it is actually the, uh, the, the desire to, to have an overall view of these sources. Well, I think we can't, we can't um, expect to, to, to come to an urtext, so the original source where uh, sure. the, 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 most of the German sources stem from, that, that, that would be next to a miracle. But by comparing different uh, sources, we can, well, uh, we, 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 can, we can keep guessing. And uh, we can, even in, in good sources, there are errors. And so by comparing them to other sources, you can try to diminish those errors in order to get a clearer reading and a, and a better understanding of, of the sources. And then again, we, we must not forget that Lichtenauer, which many of the sources are related to this also, which I spoke about, um, isn't, isn't the only truth. So there are many, many more German sources independent of omnipresent master Lichtenauer. Yeah, that's really worth sort of highlighting that because everyone in the historical martial arts community who is not a raging manuscript geek will tend to kind of conflate there's the German stuff is Lichtenauer, the Italian stuff is Fiore, and the later German stuff then is Maya, and the later Italian stuff is Bolognese, and it's all basically sort of like this continuous thing and it's just one branch. So they're basically... They're, we, we tend to see like a, a continuum rather than what it really is, which is sort of this branching network effect with some completely yeah. unrelated trees growing next to it. The, 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 the most intriguing thing is that from our 21st century perspective, um, it, it is an inextricable web um, right. um, because everything is interconnected with everything. But then again, when we go to the, say, to the, to the middle of the 15th century, when there was no Joachim Meyer and no Paulus Hector Meyer, the picture is, well, not entirely clear, but it is not so completely messy. Because, mm -hmm. um, okay, Paulus Hector Meyer, possibly, possibly it's hard for people to differentiate between Meyer and Meyer, because they sound quite similar. 
The one is yeah. Paulus Hector Meyer, the other is Joachim Meyer. Joachim Meyer is the famous fencing master who, um, who, who is in the tradition line of Master Lichtenauer and has created a huge, uh, a huge fight book on his own with all kinds of disciplines such as Dussac and, and staff weapons and long sword, of course, and, and everything. And so his first edition, printed edition, actually is from 1570, so rather late in comparison to, say, Peter von Danzig from 1452. Paulus Hector Meyer is roughly the same, the same timeline as the other Meyer because he collected books. Well, he was, he was uh, in the... Um, part of the city magistrate in the city of Augsburg, and he collected manuscripts, and he created manuscripts. So he actually did what I do. So I, I don't collect original manuscripts, I can't afford that, but, well, I have a huge digital vault, and uh, I, I create books based on other books. And possibly in 500 years, people will see my editions of books and will be puzzled and say, how on earth does that relate to the 15th century? I can't understand that. <laughs> and so that is the messy thing because people like Paulus Hector Mayer assembled what they laid their hands on, had it written, rewritten, didn't uh, always, or Paulus Victor Meyer didn't include an author's name, and so just put everything in a single volume, pressed it between two book covers, and issued it. And so a lot of information can be gathered from him, but no information of authorship. And so since he collected from various sources that are related to Lichtenauer and not related to Lichtenauer, he just had his compendia created, and since they have so, uh, they connected so far unconnected material, which makes it so difficult to disentangle these connections mm. in order to go back to the sources. And so we have those sources, like Baumann's fight book, uh, commonly known as Codex Wallerstein, which is completely unrelated to Lichtenauer, saying what is completely unrelated, because there is a certain vocabulary like for and nach such as before and after uh, in, in English translation, that appears in, uh, in, in Baumann's fight book, which also appears in Lichtenauer's terminology. So what can we deduce from that? Was it common knowledge of the early 15th century, or was it something uh, Lichtenauer learned, because in one of the manuscripts it says that he has traveled many a country in order to gather knowledge? And uh, so we will possibly never know that, but this whole entire network of manuscripts is so, well, occasionally it is very dense, and occasionally it is very, very loose. And then we have stuff that is completely unrelated to Lichtenauer, like, for instance, Gladiatoria, those fight books that only deal with armored combat in complete harness. That was a right. long sentence, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and again, another, we have so much material to work with. And one of, the, one of the advantages, I think, of being an Italianist is in the 15th century, at least, you really only have Fiore. And then you've got... Yeah, if, you're, if you are... You've got Vadi 70 years later. And so you, you can just concentrate on these sources. And yes, it would be awesome to have like dozens of other ones which are kind of contemporary and related. And, you know, like, like when we get to the 16th century Italian sources, we have a similar sort of you know, question is, you know, how related is Mantellino's stuff to Delagocchi's stuff to, to 
the anonymous pollinators. You know, all, and you can draw these sort of webs and you know, make concordances and all that sort of thing. But, um, you know, if we found a whole treasure trove of 15th century um, fencing manuscripts from Italy, I, I would be obviously thrilled, but I would also be dismayed because suddenly my life yeah. would get a hundred well, you know, times more complicated. If you, if you are into sort and buckler, life is mm-hmm. easy. Because yeah, you absolutely. One, you have one manuscript and you can, well, like, like, my, like my colleagues Roland Batzecher or Cornelius Berthold, Berthold, by the name, the most famous fencing master. Yes. <laughs> no, well, uh, honestly, but, but they are uh, sword and buckler enthusiasts. And uh, so, of course, they, they have one single source they can, uh, can base their training on. Okay, you can interrelate. On, uh, possibly there are later sources you can look into. But then again, 133, the first fight book that ever that still exists deals completely with sword and buckler and uh, so it is the, the only source of its kind and so that is on one hand it is a luxurious uh, yeah how to put it it is um, a brilliant starting point because you don't well you you, you got, don't lose track. You can't concentrate on one single source. But then again, what if this single source was written by somebody who knew nothing? Well, I right. think it's that. But we don't know whom to actually trust. And only because, I don't know, uh, I think there are 29 manuscripts that um, contain Master Lichtenauer's sources. And they were copied over and over again. But back then, what was worth copying? Worth copying was what was worth copying. That is, uh, it goes in circles, but what was good had to be copied again. And so yeah. it is like some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And so possibly Lichtenauer wasn't that good after all, but he was copied because it was, <laughs> because it was just Lichtenauer, the Lichtenauer. Oh, um, my God. Okay, I'm going to take that little snippet of audio where Dick Hagedorn himself says, possibly Lichtenauer wasn't that good. And I'm yeah, just going to play that, it on another, repeat. Take yeah. that out of context, please. And put it on I'll, take it, I'll take it out of context. <laughs> I'll repeat it a hundred times. And that's the episode. And all of my Italian people will be going, jumping up and down and going, yay, we knew it all along. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, but that, is, um, that, is, that is really a strange thing with all these sources because you, 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 the longer you look into it, I can't claim that it has become any clearer and um, there is so much, still so much to to do. And um, actually, you know, sometimes I, I I wonder why are there not why, why are there so few source nerds actually? Because well, I, I can't be. Uh, it, it isn't so special after all, or is it? I don't know. No, no, no. There are there are lots. I mean, most of my friends probably. Yeah, so we say two thirds of my friends would qualify, brilliant. Because they they may that they may not have, well, some of them will have a really deep experience and academic training and the rest of it. But there are a lot of people out there, and and dozens and dozens of my students even, who spend significant amounts of time trying to work with the original manuscripts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Granted. granted. So, and and and, yep. and and many of them actually go to the extent of learning to read Italian or learning to read German or learning to read, you know, whatever language they're interested in, 
uh, whatever language of the source they're interested in, so that they can they they can start you know, approaching you know? the original text. It, the people are out there, but most of them didn't start in the early nineties. They started maybe in the last ten years or so. So we need to just give them some time to. Yeah, possibly. I was possibly being overdramatic, but you know what? <laughs> One of the most rewarding, the most rewarding moments in in my regular training is when when I observe people how they actually work with and read the sources, mm-hmm. because I I, am, I I create a little something for for my students, and it is a little booklet. So I have little, de- depending on on what we're dealing with, it is a sixteen or twenty or or, or thirty two page booklet that that concentrates on a specific technique. Say, for instance, the Tverhau or the Krompau. And so I, I gather all the sources and put them in a little booklet and I have it printed. And so I hand it out in the beginning of, I don't know, I say, okay, we will deal for, with that for the next stop. two months. Stop, stop. Every single one of my students is now going, Guy, we want uh, booklets. It's not fair. You, How come big students get those booklets? That is not you, fair. You will have something better. You have video. I don't have video. Oh, uh, well, I'm sorry. I think actually I, most, of, most of my people would prefer booklets. We I, tend to say, be... say video is cooler and they will believe you. <laughs> no, actually, actually I, I have the sources in there and I compare them page by page. Mm-hmm. So I have the same section written by different authors. And so you see, okay, here somebody skipped a line and their specific technique is described in a bit more detail. Here, author A add something or to be deletes it or didn't mm. think it is worth mentioning. And so people start to actually read the sources and this gives me great pleasure, I must admit. Yeah, it is really nice when they start actually looking at the books. Now, but actually, actually you need to understand the sources, I think, whether well, that is my humble or feeble opinion, that you, you actually need to understand the sources at least a bit in order to being able to recreate this old art. You need a lot of, oh, sure. a lot of things more, but without a proper understanding, that gets even, even trickier. And yeah, although, although with, with the right fencing instructor... A student can become a really good fencer without ever reading a book, but of course, of but, course. But yeah, I think I think it, it sort of goes without saying that for historical martial arts, you really have to know the sources that you're dealing with or what you're doing. It might be exactly the way it appears in the text, but if you haven't actually studied the text and you don't know that, there's a certain I don't know. There's a depth missing. Well, yeah, it, it, it depends, of course, on the priorities you set. Yes, because exactly. I am, I'm a bookworm. And actually, really? Really? I, you surprised I, me. <laughs> <laughs> actually, fencing, fencing has been very, very mean to me, historical fencing in particular, because it tricked me into doing sports. And actually, <laughs> I despise sports. And so here I am and exercising regularly which I wouldn't have expected a couple of years ago, well, say 20 or 30 years ago. But anyway, and, um, but then again, that's me. I, I like the books. I like to stick my nose into those old pages. But then again, there are people who concentrate on athleticism and on, on tournaments and winning medals, and that's not me. And so, of course, there are, I think, tons and millions of people 
possibly millions of people out there who mop the floor with me when I, when I fight with them because they are much more athletic, fit, younger, taller, stronger, and um, so more competitive. I don't know. So that is a different approach, and um, it's, it's a different approach. Yeah, and it really depends on really what you're after. And the thing is, those my view is those medals get sort of lost and forgotten very quickly, but those books will still be in libraries hundreds of years from now. And it's possible some of them, somebody will actually read them. Who knows? Who knows? It'd be nice. Now, we are, we are running quite close to time, so I need to sort of wrap things up with a couple of questions I ask most of my guests. And the first is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? I am not unprepared to that question. <laughs> okay, go on then. Actually, I have been following your podcast quite thoroughly. <laughs> oh, good. Um, so, um, actually, there are a couple of, um, of, of best ideas I've never acted on. So, best is to be put yeah. in parentheses. Um, and, of course, I have to admit failure because since I didn't act on it, I, I failed completely. And one of my biggest failures is, um, number one, start, we, we start with the biggest one. I never was an excavation draftsman. What is an excavation draftsman? An excavation is, uh, well, you know what an excavation is. You oh, right, so archaeological excavation, okay. Archaeological, okay. So yeah. I, I need, to, I need to, to look that term up because in German it's Grabungszeichner, and I, I had no idea what that actually is in English. So in, in archaeological excavations, you, you, of course you photograph things, you, you dig up a lot of the mud, uh, but you have a draftsman too, because a drawing can convey occasionally much more detail than a photograph can. So, okay. so artifacts are still being drawn by draftsmen. And um, I had the opportunity to be an archaeological draftsman, whatever the name actually may be. You're probably right. I just don't know the term. Okay, uh, Ex excavation draftsman. Let, let other people look it up. And, <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> Um, I had the chance to be one in, um, in, in Pergamon because mm -hmm. my arts teacher had a brother and the brother was the, the leader of the excavation in Pergamon. Wow. And, it, and I, had, I, had the, um, I had the opportunity and the possibility to go there and I couldn't. Oh, I had to decline. And that bugs me until today. And okay. as it occasionally is in life, you get a second chance. Mm -hmm. 30 years later, I got a second chance because I got to know on a vacation the leader of the excavations in Cairo. Okay. And he, I told him the story and how, how, how sad it was after all these years that I have never had the opportunity to, to be an excavation and draw, actually. And he said, no problem, you, you might come. And I, I was tempted for a moment, but then in Egypt, hell broke loose. And I decided ah, against it. Yeah, okay, bad timing. And so I think, meanwhile, I, I've had two chances, and I think I'll never draw at an excavation anymore, and I have to make my peace with it. And <laughs> fine. But, but still, on the other hand, who knows what I'm doing when I've retired, when I'm 
70, possibly I right. go to Egypt or Pergamon or whatever, but no, possibly, possibly I wouldn't. Well, if there are any archaeologists listening who are looking for a draftsman, I can, I can definitely recommend the exploring. <laughs> it, is, it is superb. Okay, so that, that's the best idea you've never acted on. That's, that's a, one, that's one a fair one. Three, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, so my, my last question then is, somebody gives you a million euros or some equivalent large amount of money. It's imaginary money, so you can pretty much have as much as you want to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? I'd pay somebody. I'd pay somebody to do research work for me. Or for everybody. Okay. How so? What should that person do? That person should go into libraries and research the vaults for A, actual uh, mentionings of judicial duels that actually took place. Mm -hmm. to look for mercenaries in Eastern Europe mm. and look for more lost manuscripts. Okay. Well, I, why only one person? Why, why don't you have like an army uh, of, say, possibly, possibly 200, 200 of them? Because like, you want them from like lots of different countries and cultures and speaking different languages. Of, so, course we, uh, of course, we need somebody yeah, in Poland, need... somebody in St. Petersburg, in the Eremitage, somebody in Istanbul, somebody in the, in the Vatican, and somebody here in Augsburg mm. and Vienna, of course. If it's, but, but, okay, it's virtual money, so expenses don't really matter. So, yes, let's, let's employ a host of people <laughs> looking for judicial doers and mercenaries in Eastern Europe. Because, okay. you know... I think Eastern Europe may be intriguing because many, many, many of the um, of the German fencing masters have a Eastern European name, Peter von Danzig. Danzig mm. is definitely Eastern Europe. And uh, Virgili von Krakow, etc., yeah. etc. Et there are many names from Eastern Germany, which is possibly, well, which is today Poland or uh, Eastern Europe in general. And... Um, if we take into consideration that these names are all mentioned in the Gesellschaft Lichtenauers, so um, what does that actually mean? There has been a lot of speculation about that Gesellschaft and what is this society? But, well, I, I don't know. It's a wild guess, of course. But when we say societas is um, the Latin word for what in Italy, for instance, mercenary troops were called themselves, and they were called in the 14th to 15th century after their leader, it is not unlikely that Lichtenauer was just a bloody mercenary. And that is not the, unlikely. It's not unlikely. And uh, since, well, there is a very thorough in, uh, investigation about the mercenary troops in, in the Trecento in Italy, uh, about mercenaries there by Stefan Seltzer, which is really, really intriguing and a highly recommended read, actually. And... Um, actually, there there is a little something, but I haven't really tracked that down. Or I tracked it down, but I haven't read it so far. About uh, the the poison fountain, uh, those those um, well uh, well excursions of say knights or mercenaries who try to conquer the wild east and bring Christianity to everybody, mm -hmm. uh, they like it or not, and um, so possibly there is something to be found oh i'm sure there's a lot to be found there is yeah 
compared to compared to where we were 20 years ago, we have already found a mountain of stuff. But I think we are just scratching at the foothills, really. We have. We have at least discovered 20 more manuscript, uh, manuscripts. You know, uh, Hans-Peter Hilse's famous list from 1985 has, I think, uh, 55 manuscripts, German manuscripts, mm -hmm. that is. And now we have next to 80. And um, yeah. I recently got word that there is another one that has been found recently. And so I, I believe it won't stop there. Yeah, so the question is, how long is it going to take you to make authoritative editions of each one of these manuscripts? You're going to have to live that, for that would time. be That would be one also, what I have put down, which would be worth spending the money on. Publish all the bloody sources. Publish. Yes. Because, well, I have tons of images on my hard drive. I bet you have too. And possibly... Zillions of people have zillions of gigabytes of worthwhile data. And so it is of no use on my hard drive, but I'm trying I'm trying hard to, to get rid of that stuff from a hard drive in order to put it on paper. Absolutely. But it lasts yeah. so long. It lasts so long to get out a bloody book. I need a year for every book. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, for most people, a year is pretty quick for a book of that kind. I mean... I, I don't know when you sleep or whether you actually show up to work at all or not. But you know what? I, your, I, I usual, my usual answer is I don't watch TV. Ah, okay. Yeah, fair. All right. The, the secret of productivity revealed. You don't watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Derek, it's been, a, it's been a delight talking to you and an education as always. Thanks for coming on the show. Guy, it was my absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dirk. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. And while you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. On the subject of books, I should just remind you that at guywindsor.net forward slash solo, you can find my latest book, The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training. I would also like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It really motivates me to keep this thing going. And it's just really nice to know that there's a bunch of people out there who really care that the show continues. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Now, patrons, if you're listening to this, you should already have a link getting you a free copy of the new book. If you haven't received that, drop me a line, let me know, and I will sort you out. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Julie Olson, Senior Instructor at the Athena School of Arms and Director, or one of the directors, of the Iron Gate Exhibition, the largest New England historical martial arts event. She's also very well known on the Longsword Tournament circuit. So, you don't want to miss that. Tune in next week, and to avoid missing such things... You want to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. While you're there, if you'd like to rate the show and leave a review, that would be marvellous. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.